Good morning, good afternoon, good evening from wherever you may be. This is Snapshots in Hockey History. And welcome to another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History, where we relive the hockey highlight reel. My name is Brett Small. As always, just a friendly reminder, Snapshots in Hockey History is a listener-supported podcast brought to you free of charge every single Monday and Thursday at 8 a.m., except for when I'm traveling, which has been a lot lately. Either way, if you enjoy the show, you want to do something nice, you want to help us out, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Also, please don't forget to follow us on social media at Snapshots in Hockey History on Facebook and on Twitter at Snapshots in. Unfortunately, as I said in the intro, I've been traveling a lot lately, so I apologize that I went a week without an episode, then aired the George LaRock episode, and then unexpectedly had to skip last week's episode as well. Uh, just to review kind of the George LaRock episode, got a lot of positive feedback. Some people really enjoyed it. They kind of wanted to hear a little bit about some more fights. And so hopefully next time I have George come on, we can talk a little bit more about fighting throughout the NHL during his days. As we all know, he definitely was one of the more feared guys and definitely was not afraid to scrap. This week, we got another guy that wasn't afraid to scrap, probably not to the level that George LaRock was, but Matt Bradley joined us. And uh, Matt Bradley was awesome. Great interview with him. We talk about his 0-9-10 run with the Washington Capitals during the playoffs when they played the New York Rangers and the Pittsburgh Penguins. We touch on his two-goal game against the Rangers. I believe it was game five. We also talk about playing against Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, and of course, we get into some Ovechkin talking. I know a lot of listeners are probably saying, hey, why do you guys cover the Capitals so much? Is there any way you can do more of a variety of teams? And I apologize for that. I really try not to do the Capitals that often. It's just they're the home team, and they're the team that I have the most connections with, so it's easier for me to get guys from the Capitals organization on the show. Uh, so even if I do get former Capitals, I try to a lot of times switch it up. And like with Alan Hengslaben, we did the Hartford Whalers, even though he definitely has some great Capitals stories. I just I know that this is not a Capitals podcast. It's not meant to be one. It's supposed to be an NHL history podcast. So I appreciate everybody understanding about that. And I'll continue to try to mix it up and not just have Capitals players on the show. Circling back just to fill everyone in with where I've been last week. I started in Las Vegas and completely lost my voice. The company I work for had a little bit of a conference out there and they ended up holding a 90s conference, uh, excuse me, a 90s concert. And it was crazy. They had Tone Lock, the lead singer from Smash Mouth, the guy that used to sing I Just Want to Fly, and salt and pepper so of course me being the idiot i am i'm screaming at the concert i lost my voice i went to record this on monday couldn't i just went heck with it i'm traveling i'm not gonna do it uh but after spending some time in vegas i drove down to la and then wound up in san diego where i wanted to go see a goals game but they weren't in town so unfortunately that didn't happen but while i was in vegas man i could not believe how much that city has grabbed a hold of the vegas golden knights jerseys were worn everywhere and I mean everywhere at the conference the hosts were wearing Las Vegas Golden Knights jerseys I, I couldn't believe it and uh, so I'm glad to see that things of course after their first year have not died off given that you know it, sometimes you worry about the sophomore slump but I can tell you from a fan perspective they have been behind that team and are behind that team and that city is all about the Las Vegas Golden Knights as a result of traveling, haven't been able to watch a lot of games, but saw a couple big milestones took place the last week or two. Evgeny Malkin, of course, who we talk about in this interview, as I said, reached 1,000 points, so congrats to him. I still remember when he came in the league, and I'll, I'll always remember this. It was like back in the early 90s with players from the Soviet Union trying to defect. Malkin supposedly was over in Finland or something along those lines and disappeared for like four days. I think he was with his agent, J.P. Barry, who was kind of hiding him in a hotel, 
until he could get a visa and he finally got the visa and then came over and I remember the Russian Hockey Federation was furious I remember the quote of pure sports terrorism that was back in 2006 so here we are over 10 years later and he's stuck in the league a long time which is very difficult to do and he scored over a thousand points now so congrats to Evgeny on that and then I've got to touch on Carey Price oh my god I can't believe he broke the record for the Montreal Canadiens he's now the most winningest goalie you look at the goalies that have come through that organization that put puts him up top. I know we don't talk a lot about the best players or analyze hockey on this show. I mainly talk about historical stuff. And and the reason I do that is I think there are a lot of better places to go to find that comparison and talk more about who's better than who, etc. But you've got to consider him one of the greats after this. I mean, just look at just off the top of my head, Ken Dryden, Patrick Waugh, Jose Tador, Jacques Plante. What do they all have in common? They all have less wins than Carey Price does in a Montreal Canadian sweater. That's incredible. Those are some of the best goalies of all times, especially when you look at Raw and Dryden. Whether you like him or not, and I don't know how you couldn't like the guy, especially after, I don't know if anyone saw that video this past week with the fan that came up and got an autographed stick after his mom passed away. He's definitely going to go down as one of the best. But I've rambled on enough this week. Let's go ahead and cut to our interview with Matt Bradley as we cover the Washington Capitals 2009-2010 playoff run. Matt, you came to Washington after the lockout in the 0506 season, and by the time you reached the 2009 playoffs, the Capitals had gone through quite a change as an organization and in the community. Can you talk a little bit about the changes you saw as a member of the organization from the time you were there till till the 2009 season? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was huge changes. Uh, the year I got there, they were coming off a bad year, and, and my first year in Washington, we were last place. Uh, we had a lot of fun, and OV was there, so there was... There was a lot of good things going on, but attendance was down and um, definitely was not a lot of buzz about the Washington Capitals in the D.C. area. Um, but as time went on, and clearly Ovi was the driver of this uh, of this whole uh, transformation, but each year we got better as a team and Ovi got older. Uh, Nick Backstrom came into the mix, Mike Green, some really exciting players to watch. Uh, momentum started to build not only for our team on the ice, but also in the city. And I can remember going to a playoff game in uh, that year in 2009 and seeing one of the billboards, that they, the construction billboards that they can change to, to say whatever they mm-hmm. want. Uh, it said uh, go caps. And so I thought that was pretty neat because definitely the first year when I got there, there's not a chance that would have happened. Well, a, we were in the playoffs, but B, there, was just, there wasn't much of a buzz around the caps at that time. But I thought it was really neat to see that. And, since then, I was there for six years, and and since then, it's just it's only grown. And I mean, uh, the sellouts, and uh, it's it's a premier franchise in in the league with uh, with I think the best fans. And as you said, the team really started gaining some momentum. So by the time we reached the 2008-2009 season, it was a successful one for the Caps. You guys ended up winning your second consecutive Southeast Division title. It was a, it was a really good season, but the regular season ended on a sour note on April 12th with a disappointing 7-4 loss against the Florida Panthers. After the game, you were quoted in the Washington Post as saying, obviously, it's not how we wanted to end the year, but we just have to dwell on the good things that happened this season. And there was a lot of them. And get ready for the playoffs. Let's talk about some of the good things that happened during that season. I think this was the one where Mike Green ended up having that that run that he had. What other things happened in the locker room or on the ice that kind of gave everyone a good feeling? Well, I mean, I think the big thing for us uh, was with our young guys. We had young players who were already stars in the league. You had Mike Green, who was 
it was it was kind of his coming out party that year. And obviously, Ovi was mm-hmm. was the biggest name in hockey. Nick Backstrom has always been under the radar, but one of the top players in the league. So, a fun to watch and also fun for me to be around was we we had a youth team with uh, with like the best players on our team were the young guys, and they had a ton of energy. You know, they were enjoying themselves. It was just it was like a new thing for them too. So I thought that was contagious to all of us, even the older guys. It was just a fun group to be around. I still close with a lot of those guys, and it was a tight knit tight knit group. So it was a good time to be in DC, and you knew something special was was happening. You talk about knowing something special happening. The team's general vibe going into the playoffs. What was the goal going into this playoff run? Well, I think a lot of it, especially for the younger guys, it was just they were just happy to be there, and mm-hmm. and we knew we had the t- we had the team that, that we could beat anyone with uh, with our high high powered offensive guys. I mean, with a little bit of luck, we could beat anyone. And uh, I think we didn't have a ton of pressure going into the playoffs. It wasn't like we were, you know, the favorites to win that year. I think people were talking about us as as possible. You know, we could make some noise, but no one thought we would win or anything. So there wasn't a ton of pressure, and like I said, we were just enjoying ourselves. And a lot of a lot of times, the guys on the team knew that if if we got down, Ovi on his own could could win a game for us. So we had him and Mike Green and Alex Semin and all these guys. We had, we had a lot of guys that were game breakers. So it was it was an exciting time, and obviously we didn't get the result we wanted, but it was it was still fun to get to where we got to in uh, Game Seven of the second round. Who the Capitals would play in the first round really comes down to the wire. It was going to be between the Montreal Canadiens and the New York Rangers. And Matt, you had an extensive career. You played in Florida. You played in Washington. I know you were out west a little bit with San Jose. Personally, and I'm not talking about at the time, which team would you have preferred to play? And the reason I'm asking is is mainly the arenas. You got Madison Square Garden. You got where the Montreal Canadiens play. Both buildings are electric. Do either one of those stick out as a place that you loved playing in? You know what? I uh, both those places would be real high on my list, but I, I have to say Montreal was always my favorite place to play, especially in the playoffs. They have a big rink; they can get twenty-one thousand people in there, and the the fans in Montreal for people who've never been there. I mean, they're they're very passionate. Hockey is like a religion, and the, the Canadians are very special for uh, for the people of Quebec. So I always loved going there. I can remember playing them in the playoffs and Bruce Boudreau was our coach trying to trying to tell us something before the opening face-off and he basically just looked at us and we were looking at him with no idea what he was saying because it was so loud and he kind of just <laughs> shrugged and said okay get out there because there was no point in talking the building was just so loud it was shaking but for me even though it's not that wasn't our home fans just being in that atmosphere got me excited for the game and it's a special place and I'm scouting now for the Caps and I still love going there even for regular season games, because the people are always into it. It's always loud. They're always enjoying themselves. So that's that's a great building to uh, to play, especially in the playoffs. Oh, I get goosebumps just hearing you talk about it. With a 3-1 loss to the Pittsburgh Penguins, that bumped the Canadians down to the eighth seed, So, which means the Washington Capitals' first-round opponent will be the New York Rangers. And before the series even starts, the press in Washington declare New York Rangers winger past Sean Avery public enemy number one. Bruce Boudreaux was quoted in the Washington Post as saying he's going to be a really good thorn in our side. This was right around the time that Avery had made some comments. And Matt, you played against him and you played that gritty role. What are your thoughts and memories of Sean Avery? You know what? I mean, I, I he was a very effective player. I think he gets carried. He got carried away sometimes and he made things a little bit too much about himself. But mm-hmm. when he was focused and doing doing what he did, he was very effective. And part of that was being 
being a pest and being a agitator and, and he did that well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, guys like that, yeah, they, they want the focus. They want, they want the spotlight in the series, but I'll tell you that there wasn't a ton of talk about him in the dressing room. The The main thing with the guys like that is you just, you got to kind of leave them alone and not, you know, not buy into what they're selling and try sure. to, and try to stay as, as less involved with them as you can, because uh, once you get involved and, and let him irritate you, then that's when uh, he's he's won his, uh, his games. So the plan was pretty much just let him do his thing and just ignore him. Correct. And I mean, it's it's hard. There's a lot of guys like that. And, and like I said, that's why they're effective. But especially in the playoffs where every game is so, so important, you can't take dumb penalties. So you really got to leave those kind of guys alone and then hope maybe they take some dumb penalties. Well, Avery might have been the first name everyone thought of during this period. When you talked about the Rangers, the team had plenty of other stars, including Nikolai Zherdov, Scott Gomez, and Chris Jury. Game one was set for April 15th, and of course the playoffs are the second season in the NHL, and everyone tells me it's ratcheted up for the playoffs. Did you ever change your routine before the playoffs, or, or would the team do things differently once the playoffs got started? No, I, I, I didn't do anything differently as far as preparation, but I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're talking about buildings and how electric they are in the playoffs as soon as you step on the ice and you hear the fans whether it's at home or away but especially at home the sea of red i mean if you can't get up for one of those games and there's something wrong with you so <laughs> uh i think preparation for playoff games at least for me was always very easy and um those are the those are my fondest memories were playoff games because a they're the most important and b the fans were the most into it and it was just real fun fun hockey to play Game one kicked off into the shock of a full Verizon center. It didn't go the Capitals' way at all. At one point, the Rangers were up 3-1 to one before the Capitals came back. But it wasn't enough as the team lost 4-3. to three. In the hours following the game one loss, a lot of the media was placing the blame on Caps goaltender Jose Teodor. Jose himself said he wasn't good enough following the loss. Matt, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask whose fault it was, because it's never anyone one fault, but it's usually a combination of things. But everyone is pointing the finger at Taylor, and he himself is saying that he didn't play well. When something like this happens as a teammate, what do you tell your teammate to get him motivated again or, 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 or pump him back up? How, how does everyone inside the locker room react to a loss like that? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I know it's cliche, but it's a team game, and we would never blame anyone for a mm-hmm. loss. And I, I don't think it was anyone's fault, any of the losses we had. It was a team effort. Um, and a guy like, uh, like uh, Jose... He was an experienced guy, had been an MVP in the league. So, I mean, there was no worry about him battling through and being fine. But like I said, uh, there was never ever any blame put on anyone. We were a team. We won and lost as a team, and um, that's basically the end of, uh, of how we left things. Despite struggling during Game 1, Jose Tador says he wants another shot. But Bruce Boudreau was pretty noncommittal about whether he would put Tador in or back up Semyon Varlamov. At the time, Varlamov hadn't played more than five NHL games. You're in scouting now. You're in management now. Looking back on that experience, would you have given Teodor another shot? Or why do you think Bruce made the decision to eventually go with Varlamov? I, I'm in scouting and then not coaching. <laughs> oh, fair that, enough. That, that's something That's something that's, uh, I think, for coaches, possibly a feel thing or obviously a hunch thing. But, I mean, uh, those are real tough decisions, and... You know, if they work great, and if they don't, then you kind of get uh, hung out to dry for them. So, I'll I'll leave that to those kind of things to coaches. And I, I've never coached, and and nor do I want to coach, and nor do I think I know what coaches uh, go through or have to have to do. So, okay. I'll just leave that one at that. What was your initial reaction though when you found out that Varley was coming in? Who was at the time was a, a young rookie? 
I mean, obviously we knew Varley was good from practice and stuff. And, I mean, how many times have you seen goalies, uh, young goalies get a shot in the playoffs and that kind of kickstarts their career? So Very true. I mean, I don't think any of us were thinking too much about that. It was, it was like I said before, it's, it was a team preparation thing and it didn't matter who was playing in nets or who was playing in the lineup or out of the lineup. It was, it was a team effort and we had to get, get better and, and win some games. Despite being a rookie, Varley plays excellent during Game 2, but the rookie goalie performance wasn't enough. The Rangers ended up winning one nothing. The lone goal came on a 2-on-1 when Marcus Naslin made the perfect pass to Ryan Callahan, who beat Varley on the glove side. Oh man, Matt, you're down 2 nothing. What's going through your mind? Does Bruce, head coach Bruce Boudreaux say anything to you guys, or how, how do you guys rebound? And for that matter, what was Bruce like as a coach? I, I always had a great relationship with Bruce. I thought he was a, a real good communicator, um, smart, a smart hockey mind. I mean, at, at, when, when, when you're in the playoffs and you get down one or two games, I mean, it's kind of do or die the next game. It's always do or die the next game. So there's not a lot of talking about it. Everyone knows the gravity of the situation and, and knows where you're at. And it's basically you win or you, you go home. So uh, we were down two at that time. And, and we knew the next game would obviously be very important. But like I said, every game is important in the playoffs. So it's not like you need a coach to come in and yell at you. If you're not mm-hmm. if you're not prepared and excited for a a playoff game, then there's something wrong with you. So it's just a matter of maybe tweaking some things and getting some bounces. And, and obviously it worked out for us in that series. The series now turns to New York, where the Rangers will host the Capitals for games three and four. And I asked about Madison Square Garden. It's one of the most historical buildings in the world. Can you describe the feeling of, of playing in that building during the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, like, like I said, it's not too far off uh, Montreal for me. It's it's obviously the history there, and and the fans are great, even if they're yelling at you. I still I still love that. Uh, I always found it uh, an intimate rink to play in. It, it felt like you're real close to the fans, and you know, it wasn't it didn't feel big to me, mm-hmm. which I which I also liked. But I mean, anytime you can go to the Madison Square Gardens for anything, concert, any no matter what it is, it's it's an exciting time. So when you're actually uh, able to be there and actually participate in what's going on. It's it's a pretty special thing. The Capitals were able to come back to life during this game as Alex Semin scored two goals in five minutes. Nick Backstrom had three assists to give the Capitals a 4 nothing win. Brooks Like also had a goal during this game, and Brooks was one of the more popular Capitals players at the time. Do you have any fun memories of hanging out with Brooks Like at all, on or off the ice? I mean, Brooks is a good friend of mine and still is. You know what, I, I was uh, fortunate on that team especially. Uh, we all got along well, and... and it was just uh, we did a lot of things as a team, which I think that helps uh, helps on the ice as well when you're when you're close as a team off the ice. Mm-hmm. But uh, Brooksy, Brooksy was a younger guy, and obviously it had come in and, and really started to establish himself as as, as a really good uh, a good center in the NHL. So it was it was good to watch him do that. But as far as things we did, I mean. We hung out all the time. There's a group of us of the younger guys that hung out all the time, and it was, you know, I was close with uh, Jason Chimera and, mm-hmm. and some other guys. So we we had a, we had a, like I said a tight knit group, and all those guys were, uh, were were fun to hang out with off the ice. Game four was a deflating two one loss as the series turns back to Washington for Game five. The Capitals are on the verge of elimination when you come up huge and score two back to back goals in the first period and beat the Rangers hot goalie Henrik Lundqvist, who played an outstanding up to this point. I don't know if there's anybody more qualified to answer this question. It's a high-pressured game. What's the key to scoring on Henrik Lundqvist? What's the best way to do it? <laughs> You're asking the wrong guy. For me, it was all it was all luck. I remember. I mean, that was one of the highlights of my career. Was getting the two playoff goals in that game. Um, 
and so I remember them quite well. The first one was actually for me a very a very nice goal. I didn't have very many nice goals, but it was a shorthanded goal, and I, I'm pretty sure I went backhand uh, on Lundqvist. Was so I'll give myself a little bit of credit for that one. I, I still think he probably wants it back. And then the uh, the second goal, it was just a fluke and uh, not a goal that he would normally let in. Like he's he's been the premier goal in the league for so long, and uh, I I know he definitely would want that one back. But for me personally, it was it was a real uh, not important but real exciting game for me because it's something I'll look back on for a lot of years and, and remember that. And I can even tell the kids I got two goals against Henry Lundqvist in the playoffs. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's one of those things that. Because they don't remember who I was, but they they definitely know who Henrik Lundqvist is. So it was, it was for me, it was, a, it was a neat game. Well, if your kids ever hear this, I will throw this part in. In my opinion, it actually changed the direction of the series. It really changed the momentum. So you were a key factor in this series <laughs> for sure. So uh, if the Bradley yeah, kids ever hear that. that one. For you, coming off you know a, a big game like that, nothing against you, but with a team like Ovechkin, Mike Green, Nick Backstrom, What's it like when the center of attention is on you? Because I'm, I'm assuming after the game, the media must have just fled to you. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's always nice when you, you can contribute, especially with some goals. Uh, I didn't do a lot of that when I played, but I, I tried to contribute in other ways, but goal scoring was never my forte. So it was nice and an important game to get some goals, but definitely didn't worry about scoring goals going forward because I knew that was probably going to be it for me and I knew <laughs> the other guys would take over. But uh, it was it was nice that, that game and after the game, I got a lot of texts from friends and family. So um, it was, like I said, it's a, a game that I will remember fondly. I like it. You said, hey, I did my part, guys. Now I've scored my goals. You got to do the rest for me, <laughs> yeah. okay? During this game, Rangers head coach John Tortorella threw a water bottle at the fans, evidently. I find John entertaining. I don't know what he's like as a person, and I don't think from looking back that you played for him. But around the league, what was his reputation as a coach like? Uh, I never played for him. I I don't know him as a person at all, but from what I've heard, I think he's a a real smart hockey guy. Mm -hmm. I enjoy, you know what, I enjoy listening to to some of the stuff he says too. I think it's entertaining. So Mm -hmm. uh, he's obviously, for a guy to stick around and and be a coach in the NHL that long, you you obviously know what you're doing and uh, you're you're a smart hockey person and good at your job. So um, that's about all I I can say from just looking from the outside. No, I, I think that's a great way to describe him, just as an outsider looking in. Game six is back in the Big Apple and the Rangers are without their leader, John Tortorella, as a result of his actions following game five. During this game, one of the toughest of all time, Donald Brashear hits Blair Betts in what some considered a questionable hit. Donald Brashear is an interesting guy to me. I, I get the impression he's a nice guy, but very quiet. What were your experiences as a teammate playing with Donald Brashear? I know sometimes you guys would be on the same line together. Yeah, no, I, uh, I thought Brashear was great. And yeah, he's, he's definitely he's quiet and uh, not, not, a, not a talker, but a real good guy, do anything for you. And uh, one thing about Brash, I mean, people in hockey know, but he actually had a lot more skill than mm-hmm. people gave him credit for, and, and he could make plays, and he was actually a great guy to play with. Uh, I enjoyed playing with him, and, and you always felt safe when you were on the ice with him when he was on your line because he knew uh, nothing nothing was going to happen to you. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, I had great, uh, great years with Brash. Capitals pick up another win, brings the team back for a winner-take-all Game 7. Matt, you've been through a few Game 7s. Is there anything different for a Game 7? How do you get ready? What's the feeling? I mean, can you tell me anything about that? Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's the same as a, as every other playoff game, but just times ten and the pressure is times ten, and you're squeezing your stick a little uh, a little tighter. And I mean that's why it's great players can play in those games, and those mm-hmm. are the hardest games to play in because it's it's every little mistake is magnified, and you know that's usually usually tight games, and and I mean it's a ton of pressure on both teams, so. I mean, I, I can't give you a, a, an answer on how to how you prepare. You just you go out there, and then for me, is try not to make a fool of yourself. <laughs> I think you're a little hard on yourself, but the Capitals sealed the deal in DC with a big goal from one of the greatest of all time, Sergei Fedorov. I've spoken with a lot of other players, and they said in his day, Fedorov was one of, if not the most talented players on the ice. I know you played with him later on in his career. I think he played another season or so in the NHL. Actually, I think this might have been his last one. Now that I say that. Is that a fair statement that he was one of the most talented guys? And what were your thoughts on him? And, and I guess why we're on him. Did him and Alex Ovechkin have chemistry on the ice together? Uh, I don't remember as much on my stuff with him and Ovi, but I know um, obviously for Ovi being a young guy and then having a veteran and a superstar Russian guy come into the mix is, is I think helped him as far as learning how to even just how to do stuff away from the rink, uh, Fed was great at that. But I mean, I remember growing up watching uh, watching Feds play in Detroit, and he was always the guy. You, your eye would always be drawn to him because of the way he could skate and how how skilled he was. And yeah, he might have slowed down a bit when he was with us, but he still did things that that you just sat back and and said, yeah, I can see I can see this uh, this superstar talent here. So. He was great for us. I thought he did a great job, and you know he could play defense. He could he could play forward. He was kind of a utility guy for us, but he, he was a he was a big difference maker in in that run. You grew up watching him in Detroit. Do you remember what color his skates were? White. I remember because the reason I know that is because I got them. They were Nikes, and I got the same ones, and I wore them uh, when I was young. So that that is one thing I remember well. It's funny. I was talking to Tim Taylor about that, and Tim Taylor said, "Brett." When you're when you can skate like him, you can wear whatever the hell you want. For sure. And I remember those commercials uh, with Jim Carrey and Net for the Capitals. Definitely a, a, in the '90s, he was at the top of his game. Yeah. I want to start a campaign to bring the white skates back. Heck, why I'm at it, I want to get T-Blades back. Does anybody else remember those? I actually was roughing a game a few weeks ago and saw a men's league player that still wears those. I hadn't seen him in like 10 years. But seriously, how great would it be if we could get Ovechkin or Crosby or somebody to wear the white skates again? Those things were awesome. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google Sergey Fedorov white skates. Those things were hilarious. They were Nikes. They were awful. They were totally 90s, and that's what makes them so great. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed part one of our interview with Matt Bradley. We get into the series against the Pittsburgh Penguins on the part two. We also talk about the Russians that played for the Capitals, his role during the series against the Penguins. Also, he had the opportunity to play with Mario Lemieux, which was kind of neat. We talk about that. After all, Matt did spend some time with the Pittsburgh Penguins earlier in his career and, uh, and so on. So anyways, have a great few days. We'll catch you back on Thursday for another episode of Snapshots in Hockey History. Talk to you then.